Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. We've got a repeat guest on the show. Actually, this is his third visit, Andre Smith, who I met, gosh, seven, eight years ago at a car dealership. So he's going to share with us again his tips on how to negotiate to get the best price for a car. He's also going to talk about his transition from selling cars to selling software as a service, what we call SaaS. We'll talk about the transferable skills that come from a background in sales. He'll also give us an update on where he sees the car market going, including trends around electric vehicles. Without further ado, Andre Smith. Welcome to the NGPF Speaker Series. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Tim. It's been a little while since I've seen you, so it's nice to see you still cranking on this. Yeah, even better. Yeah, let's see. Last two years, we've gone from eight states to about 17 states. Um, wow. Guaranteeing financial education. Here in California, we've got tremendous support from uh, the state superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurman. So I'm hoping we can have something happen in our home state here. That's awesome. All right. So why don't you fill folks in with a little bit of your uh, maybe bio up to yeah, you work in the car industry. Yeah, certainly. So I uh, went to UC Santa Cruz after high school and studied pre-med. I was going to go to medical school much because my mom wanted me to which I think is kind of one of the wrong reasons to want to go to medical school. So um, I didn't end up going to medical school because I realized that everybody was a lot more passionate about it than I was. Uh, and then I graduated. I was actually volunteering for a group that turned out to be a front for the Communist Party, which actually is not hard to do in Santa Cruz uh, to accidentally fall into that. So I was like, oh, whoa, that's what you guys do. And I found out that there was no chance I was ever going to make a good wage working for a commune, basically, which is what it turned out to be. So I ended up kind of lost a little bit after college, not knowing what to do because I didn't want to go to medical school, but I wanted to not be living at home. So I accidentally fell into the car business. Uh, I literally just met somebody at a restaurant uh, who was working the car business and she she turned out to, it was just serendipity. She was, she still is probably like the number one or number two Audi salesperson in the country. And we started talking and she was like, oh, my son is 18 and he makes $120,000 a year. And I was like, he's what now? And, uh, and then I was instantly sold. I was like, all I needed was to not live at home. That was my requirement for my job. So yeah, so I went to go sell cars and it was an eight year career. It was awesome. I think sales is one of the most, un, un, uh, what's the word I'm looking, I'm searching for here. I, I think it's not appreciated enough how important that is, right? It's not taught in most business programs and yet, when you think what makes the world go round, you know, if you're, especially in, you know, you're in California, you're in kind of Silicon Valley, the whole story of startups is you got to sell and you got to sell investors, you got to sell customers. And we think of, you got to sell your product to customers, but there's selling to get employees to join the team. There's selling to investors or selling to banks. Like there's so much involved. What kind of preparation did, I mean, I always wonder are sales people born or can it be taught like what I think you have to have a little bit of a predilection for like doing to talking to people because I think that sales is 
my dad sold my dad was a plumber and then he worked in, in Australia and he sold like pipes literally he worked for a company called tube makers and he did that for like four years after being a plumber when he was uh kind of in his younger years and so I kind of talked to my dad I had a vague understanding of what sales was but it didn't I literally thought a salesperson was somewhere akin to that a cashier like somebody that just like did a transaction I didn't understand like how important the human element is to a bigger transaction like you buy a pair of pants okay uh, maybe you don't need a salesperson really, but maybe you do. Uh, but you buy a car or a house or a boat or enterprise software or literally any transaction that's larger than a couple hundred bucks, people want to talk to somebody because we're social creatures. And so the best thing about sales is if you have somebody that has some semblance of people skills and they have a very clear understanding that they want to make money then sales is the best because sales is so easily, it's the easiest job to incentivize. You work harder, we'll pay you a percentage of what you make us as a business. So you sell our $100 software, we'll give you 10% of the first three months or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. You just come up with an incentive structure. So it's so much simpler than marketing or human resources or any of these other parts of a business, which are very hard to kind of understand what is somebody doing well, even engineering, it's like, it used to be like lines of code. And then it was like, well, now it's features. And then it's like, well, that feature sucks. So do you incentivize on features if the feature sucks? Whereas sales, it's literally revenue. Like here's your percentage of the revenue. You know how much money you make. This is how much money the salesperson gets. And so because incentives are so clear, it's a really easy job to learn. You just have to learn how to do the transaction. You have to learn your product, which is not rocket science, except for when you're probably selling rockets. And then other, you know, it's just not that complicated. And so selling cars, literally, I could teach a high school grad, not even a high school grad, somebody that has a graduate high school, you don't, as long as you can talk to people, there was 18 year old kids that came into the car business. Now this is the Silicon Valley. So they were making a little more than anybody else, but 18 year old kids were coming in and we were training them. And within a couple of months, they were making five, six, $7,000 a month. Like it was not complicated. You, it needs to be a hot product with good management and you're good to go. You just, it's not hard to teach somebody how to sell if they like people. Okay. You're leaving one big piece out of this here, which is the pressure of a quota. Yeah. I think that the pressure of a quota is just realizing, yeah, sure. That's true. But at the same time, it's just, you're getting to see something that always existed. Like if you underperform at any job, you're not going to, get to stay it's just you might get an extra three months of leeway because they can't they don't know that you aren't great at your job for an extra three months but eventually they're going to figure out you're not good at your job sales is exactly the same way a good salesperson will be employed their entire life because everything everybody needs salespeople. literally as soon as you even companies that don't have salespeople would make more money if they had salespeople, and this happens all the time so you know, Tesla's a classic example. It's like, we don't have salespeople. Okay, maybe we have salespeople. We don't have salespeople. We don't, like people wrestle, even companies are like, we're not, we're anti-sales. They kind of wrestle with the idea of actually having salespeople because the math just works. Paying people to sell you stuff is better than the alternative, usually, I think. So yeah, the quotas can be stressful, but there's something, if you get into it at a young age and you're just used to it, then that's kind of nice. Like if you tell an 18 year old kid, like, Hey, come sell cars. I'll teach you how to do it. And in three months, if you haven't sold any cars, it wasn't a good fit, go do something else. But if you're making good money, 
keep doing it. So you do need a little bit of leeway, but we, a lot of people think, oh, you sell cars. It's a commission only job. Well, what if I don't sell any cars the first month? Almost every dealership gives you a guarantee for the first three months. Hey, we're going to give you three grand a month for the first three months. If you suck at three months, we're going to cut you. And that's just obvious. So maybe that's a little bit of pressure, but every job has invisible pressure. It's way nicer to have a job that has visible pressure. So you actually know how you're doing instead of like, am I going to get a raise this year? It's sales never has that problem. How uh, within a dealership itself, was it easy for you to find a mentor? You know, somebody who, and, and I also would love to know kind of if you did have a mentor, like what were the things you watched for? Because obviously you wanted to succeed. Yeah, I would. It's card again. Sales is the easiest because you just who's who's like there's a sales board. Like in almost every company, it's like how much you can go into Salesforce at a tech company or you go to your CRM and you just look at the rankings because almost every it's very rare. I've never heard of a sales team not having rankings. It's like well, that's the top performer. Now the top performer is probably busy, but number two probably has a little bit of time. And so you just you go to the top performer. And honestly, the funny thing was um, the lady who hired me very quickly we became kind of rivals and so she didn't want to help me at all after like the first couple of months because she was like oh he's trying to take my spot i wasn't trying to take her spot but you know that was the feeling so then you had to find a mentor somewhere below where she was that doesn't mean i didn't watch everything she did and just copy her perfectly but i mean it's pretty easy in sales you have to find somebody that likes helping people but good news like most salespeople like people therefore they'll they want you to like them. So helping people is something that's very natural for most people. So finding a mentor wasn't hard. I ended up finding an excellent mentor about five years in. I had a bunch of mentors. And then about five years in, I got a new manager. And I like, I remember he started at the bottom at the dealership. He like, he was a used car sales guy at the very bottom. But I walked it. He always wore a perfect suit. He came in. It wasn't, he wasn't like rich. He just dressed well, took care of himself. And the, I remember I walked to work because I lived nearby and I saw him sweeping the lot. And I was like, what is that guy doing? It was Frank. I was like, Frank, what are you, what are you doing? We're not even open yet. He's like, my customers need a clean lot. If I'm going to deliver a car, I'm not going to have a bunch of leaves on the lot. I was like, oh, this guy takes so much responsibility. And guess what? Within a year, he was the manager. He was my boss within a year because it's just that person rises to the top. And I was like, you got to be my, my mentor. And he was like, done. And he loves mentoring. He, that's like his passion. And I'd still keep up with him now. All right. We're going to shift gears a little bit because uh, we put out a mini unit on buying a car yeah. a couple months back. I think it was one of the most popular releases we've ever done. And obviously yeah. that attests to teachers hearing, teachers knowing their students are really interested in, yes. in buying a car. Uh, give Give us your three, yeah, three best tips for buying uh, a car. It's all about information. Negotiation is so overvalued. If you're negotiating, you're it's too late, almost certainly, because negotiating means that you don't really. Negotiation is a way to find out the fair price through a back and forth. It's like I give you an offer, you give me a counter offer, you find let's meet in the middle, and you make a deal. If you're at that point when you're buying a car, you probably are thinking you're getting a good deal, which is what they want you to think. But in reality, like you, it is so, uh, cars are commodities. It is so, it's just like an iPhone. It just happens to be sold by somebody who is trying to make as much money per product. It's just a weird product type. And so, but it is a commodity and almost every city, if you're in a city, has multiple car dealerships that sell the same product. So yeah, if you're trying to buy a Kia, what, what's that super 
not, there's that big Kia SUV that like everybody wanted. If you're trying to buy that one, okay, it's going to be kind of hard to get that one. And you're probably going to pay top dollar. But like, if it's a mass, I bought a RAV4, for, for instance, like a Toyota RAV4. And there's seven uh, Toyota dealerships in like 20 miles or 50 miles or whatever. And so I just, you, email, you figure out the car you want, go and test drive figure out the exact car, the exact options. You find the car on different dealership websites. You ask every single dealership, how much does it cost? You compare your quotes and you just find the person that you like to work with and say, hey, the best price I got was, you know, it was $30,000 out the door. You know, can you do that price? You have the exact car I want. I'll, you know, I have my own financing. And they go, almost certainly they're going to say, Oh, I don't know about that. And you say, okay, well, if you're interested in my business, you know, I'm deciding in the next 24 hours. Boom, they're gonna email me back. Okay, can you come today? And then you buy the car. Like the, you shouldn't be in the office going, well, I don't know if I can do that. Like if you're doing that, you're too late. You've already, you don't have enough information and they know you don't have enough information. And that's why there's a back and forth and you're gonna pay more than you needed to. So you shouldn't walk into the dealership with intention to negotiate. You should walk into a dealership intention to find out what you want then you go back home, you go on the internet, you do your research, check True Car, Kelly Blue Book, you find the dealerships that have the cars that you want, you ask every dealership what the best price is, you get your own financing, and then you go in and you, you compare and shop just like if you were doing anything else. Like it, it's not that complicated. I think people make it complicated because there's a mythos about negotiating, but like you don't need to do that. You, you mentioned several times, get your own financing. Why is that important? Well, because you got to think you want to isolate variables when you're talking about the price of something. And so if a car dealership, if you're talking about you're buying a $30,000 RAV4, the dealership might say, okay, you buy this car for $30,000, come in, we'll give you financing. You come in, in California, for instance, uh, I don't know about Toyota, but I know like Audi can mark, a dealership can mark up the interest rate up to 1%. So if you're getting 5.9% financing, the dealership's buying it for 4.9, selling it for 5.9 and making 1%. Well, guess what? You could have gone to Wells Fargo and gotten 4.9. So you're just paying that extra percent. So if you allow the conversation about price to be multifaceted, it's really easy to lose track of like where you're getting a deal. So if you go to a credit union or probably credit union is best, but let's say you need special financing, you go to a bank or something like that. You got your pre-approval first. Then you go like, imagine if you bought a house and then you had to negotiate your interest rate with the seller. Like that would be insane to be like, I want to buy your house for a million dollars. And they're like, all right, I'll sell it to you for a million, but your interest rate is 7%. Like that would make it so complicated. You would never do that. But that's what people do with cars. You shouldn't do that with cars. You should get your financing and then go in and uh, do your research and like buy the car. I think I know what answer you're going to give me when it comes to trade-ins too. Oh, trade-ins are actually so fun right now. If you have a trade-in that's less than 10 years old, there's these startup companies that are venture funded, Shift and all of these ones. And people like that know me from the car business will email me all the time. Like, hey, do you think I should invest in this startup? And the answer is almost always no, because these are like venture backed companies that are all across the United States and they have like $300 million they're sitting on and they want to buy used cars and sell them on their marketplace. So, I mean, you, if you trade in a car that has less than a hundred thousand miles on it, you are like giving up two, three, $4,000 that you could have gotten selling that car to one of these venture backed 
super companies that are going to be out of business in five years. But right now you should spend Andreessen Horowitz money to buy your used car. Like just do it. Like they're overpaying. Just let them overpay. And like shift is a perfect one. Like I sold a car and shift that I got $3,000 more than I should have for no reason. They just want to win and they don't care about making money. And that's the perfect buyer. So I'd say right now that will exist for a couple more years. Right now, if you have a car that less than hundred thousand miles, sell it to a tech company that like buys used cars. There's a million of them and they're all backed by venture and none of them care about making money. And they'll come to your house and give you a check. Like they came to my house, inspected the car, gave me a check the same day. It was insane. And perfect customer service, five-star review. And uh, they overpaid. And so do that. Don't If you trade in, the dealership needs to make $2,500 of profit plus $2,000 in fixing up the car. So there, there's $4,500 there that you're going to get less than what you should have. So yeah, don't do that. Yeah, those of you not familiar, Andreessen Har Horowitz is a large venture capital firm uh, in the Valley. And I think that phenomenon you're talking about, Andre, which is you know growth at all costs. We have to yeah. show that we're Revenue. buying and selling cars on our platform. And so we're going to do it uneconomically because we got to show top line growth. And so they're overpaying for cars. So why not take Just advantage? Take advantage of it. Probably akin to the early days of Uber, right? Where you were. Oh, 100%. Uber used to be so, it used to be like $3. Like you, I remember when I signed up for Uber Eats, they used to give me uh uh, where can we find the names of these venture companies in our area? You can literally Google buy my used car and a bunch of like these tech companies. They pay so much for Google ads. Shift.com is what I used. And they're going to probably hate me for saying this, but they way overpay. Uh, and the, and used cars are worth so much money right now. There's so few of them that like ever since COVID, it just wiped out so much of that market. So anyways, yeah. I think you got to act quickly because I think the inflation in used cars is is less than it was. Oh, Maybe. right now is a good time to sell your used car. It's a bad time to buy a new car. So, I mean, you're not going to really win net, but it's not bad. Talk a little bit about what, uh, and I think you had already left the dealership. We're going to get to your current role in a minute, but I think yeah. you had already left the dealership, but you're still keeping your eyes on the car industry. Like, like what happened? I think we're getting close to the average price of a new car, close to $50,000. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my read on it, you can tell me if I'm wrong here is, okay, so I'm a car company, we're low on chips, chips can show, I can put chips in a low, you know, low value model, or I can put it in a high profit model. And so I, I'm going to shift my mix in terms of the cars that go down my production line, I'm going to shift my mix so that those chips end up in the highest profit vehicles. And so a lot of it has to do with just what's on the, what's on the lot, what's being offered for sale when it comes to new cars. I think that, so what happens is the car business, same thing that happened in houses. It's like house price went up because interest rates were low. The same thing happened in cars. People, car buyers are payment buyers almost always. So if I come in and I'm spending like an Audi buyers, they're like, I'm going to pay $800 a month in financing. If you can get them 72 month financing and they put $5,000 down, that's not that hard to get to that number of 800 bucks a month because you're getting, oh, it's 2.9% interest. You could do the math. It's not hard to get a very expensive car. So because car buyers are so often payment buyers, low interest rates allowed the price of these cars to, to uh, go up. And then Low interest rates also translates into like there's a huge move towards leasing. If you it was just like leasing special, leasing special, leasing special. And then what a lot this is getting into like inside baseball or kind of like stuff that would be boring to the average person. But like 
BMW really started this thing where they were like insane lease deals and they would basically pump up these super, they would build leases to be very specifically cheap upfront. And so they could inflate the price of the cars that they were selling, lease them out at the same payment as a cheaper car, and then deal with the car on their books later. I, it, it, we could get into it, but it's kind of complicated. Everybody started copying that because BMW sold a ton of cars doing that. And so leasing became such a big focus and that allowed car prices to go up without payments going up. Because a customer would come in, hey, I'm willing to pay $800 a month on a finance payment. It's like, okay, we could do that. But what if you paid 700 bucks a month for a lease? And they're like, yeah, that sounds good. Well, now you can sell a $50,000 car. You know, So that's, that's how it, it low interest rates and interesting financial products allowed that to happen. Do you think there's a 10-year auto lease somewhere in the future? I mean, I've seen kind of the, when you look at the percentage of auto loans at different um, different durations, six, seven, I mean, you're seeing huge increases in six, seven, eight-year leases, or six and seven-year at least. Um, you mentioned people are payment buyers. People are payment buyers, but at the same time, at the there is a bank that backs all of these car companies at the end of the day, and like, they do need the money to make some kind of semblance of sense. I don't think that they want to write 10 year leases probably, but you'll see that car business is desperate to be a SaaS company. That's why you'll see in the news, it'll be like BMW charges $5 for a month for heated seats. It's like, that's them trying to be a SaaS company. They're just trying to charge you per month for something so that they can be looked at like a, like Tesla's looked at, which is like, look at me like a tech company, value me like a tech company. My stock is cheap. I mean, that all kind of, comes from the top. So I think that like you will see interesting ways that car companies move into uh, just whatever they can do to keep people on infinite payment plans. Um, it'll be interesting because uh, electric cars just don't break that much. Uh, and so, you know, you're going to lose a lot of service revenue at a car dealership and that's a bad thing for a car dealership. So they need to figure out some way to make monthly money. Yeah. So I've got a you know, especially outfitted Toyota RAV4 that's about 10 years old. Uh, and you're right about not needing service. I think yeah. I visited the dealer once. Um, yeah. And that's been it. Yeah. Talk about EVs. Uh, I was shocked to hear worldwide, 10% of car sales were EVs. Now that's obviously not the US. The US is much lower, but I wonder based on what you know about dealerships, how quickly is that what do you know about dealers as well as customers? How quickly is that evolution? Because, you know, it seemed like Tesla had the market to themselves for a long period of time. Now yeah. he's got. Yeah, it's not about, well, I'd say with Tesla, the thing that's, that, that the only thing that matters with Tesla in my eyes is their supercharger network when it comes down to it, because it doesn't matter how good your product is. If you don't have the chargers all over the place, that's the last EV you buy from the company. Like you can go and buy a really nice EV from one of these other manufacturers, but if it's a pain in the ass to go, excuse my language, a pain in the ass to go charge it somewhere, then you're just never going to buy another one. Cause that just would, you know how annoying it is to get off an exit and there's not a gas station right there. Like that's the thing that Tesla solved, at least in some parts of the country and everybody else is like 10 years behind. So like that was the thing with Audi EVs, they were really nice and the range was a little worse, but like they were so nice. But people would be like, dude, I, they'd call me like, I can't find a charger. All the chargers at the mall are filled. But guess what? If I had a Tesla, there's one at Target. There's one at Costco. There's, they're everywhere. And Tesla's just way ahead on superchargers. So I think EVs uh, are 
better. Like, there's no question that for most people, they're going to be better. Hertz just came out with this thing that said like EVs long-term are 30, I think they said 30% cheaper cost of ownership long-term for a rental agency. I mean, when I take an Uber now, they're almost always model threes because they tell me, I ask all the Uber drivers, they hate me because they don't want to talk. And I always ask them questions and I, and they're like, Uber drivers are actually, they'll tell you a lot, but they, a lot of them drive Teslas because the, when you take into account the type, the price of gas, it's cheaper to drive a Tesla model three on rental from Uber than it is to have their own car and drive a gas and deal with everything else you have to pay for. So that is a existential crisis for manufacturers, because if you're behind on charging network, your EV product isn't perfect yet, but people want EVs. You're also going to make way less money on service. I mean, like car dealerships make millions of dollars per month on service. Like it's like 50% profit a lot of times to service people's cars. That disappears when you have an EV because they just don't need anything. Uh, it, there's nothing moving in the car except for like a little electric motor. So it's not like a gas car that everything breaks all the time. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big problem for manufacturers. It's really good for customers because I think everybody like this market is evolving and electric cars are long-term going to be better for everybody, I think. And I think there was an infrastructure bill, right? That had some, um, I know. Yeah, I don't know too much about that. Yeah, to try and solve that exact problem because they better move quickly to get those chargers out there. Otherwise you're going to have a lot of electric cars on the side of the road. Um, well, even just the grid ramifications are interesting. I have a friend that getting a PhD, that got a PhD in electric grid stuff. Uh, I guess it was some kind of electrical science stuff over at Cal. And he was telling me, he was like, if everybody had an electric car, like our grid is kind of not good enough. So like the amount of people charging their car at night, like it would re-need the infrastructure because the cars are coming, the infrastructure is not ready. So we don't have enough chargers and we don't have enough energy production at the right time of the day for everybody to charge their cars. So like, this is gonna change a lot in the next 10 years. Will be fascinating to watch. Uh, last thing about cars. Tell us about the office, right? You kind of get done with your the salesperson you're working with, and they say, "Come on, let's let's go have you meet the finance guy." How important is the finance guy when it comes to the profitability of a dealership? Extremely important. I would say, like on an Audi, a lot of times we'd lose money on the front, so like we'd like lose money. Like there was always like a little bit of more money coming from Audi, but a lot of times we would like the the actual profit and loss sheet would say like negative fifteen hundred dollars front end transaction, $3,000 finance profit. Like that is super common. And then that's a $1,500 net positive transaction. So you buy a warranty that's marked up 50%. You buy, you get interest from the dealership. That's at least a percentage of uh, like 1% of that 4%, 5%, 6% that you're paying is from the manufacturer. You buy any product that's 50% profit at least sometimes 70% profit. And people just buy stuff in finance because they get so stressed about buying the car. And then they're like, okay, I bought my car. And they get into finance, they're all relaxed. And they're like, oh yeah, that sounds pretty. Yeah, I'll buy a tint for $1,500. And it's just like, well, that tint costs $500. You just paid 1,500. You know what I mean? Like that's the entire way it's built. It's very old school business. And it's just an add-on. It's just like when you buy something on Amazon now, it's like, do you want to buy a warranty? It's like, I don't need a warranty for an alarm clock, but it's $7, you know, like why not? And it's the same thing in the car business. So there's so much profit in finance. Uh, and yeah, I mean, some of those products are good, uh, but they're very expensive. Do you buy a warranty when you buy a car? On my RAV4, I didn't. 
Uh, but we'll see. Maybe I'll regret it in the future. But it came with a pretty good warranty, and I'm not that worried. Yeah. All right, let's shift gears. So you left the car business. Why? COVID was really very odd. Like COVID was first like the greatest place ever to like time to sell cars because all the salespeople, there was only like three people that was kept at the dealership. Uh, we stayed open even though we were like under orders to close because we were like, we're transportation, which was kind of true, I guess. And then we, but you just, everybody paid MSRP for like the first couple of months of COVID because it's like, oh, oh, you want to buy a car, sir? Like, well, I don't know. We're the only dealership open in the state. So do you want to come in? Like they were, we had a complete capture of the market. So we were making crazy money for like two months. And then like people started to shut us down and then customers stopped caring about COVID after like three months. And they would just be like, I'm not wearing a mask. And this was way before vaccines or anything. And it was like, wait, am I putting my life at risk to sell German luxury cars? Like that doesn't seem like a, like I knew people that were getting sick and I was like, I'm good. Like, I think I'm okay. And then more dealerships open. So we didn't have a capture on the market. And I was just like, it's been eight years. I made a ton of money. It's time to try something new. All right. So talk about, yeah, your current role, uh, selling software. Oh yeah. So this was a kind of a funny thing. I, uh, I, I wasn't planning on actually going to do sales anymore. I was, I wanted to like get into writing or do something. I just want to do something totally different because car business was great for me. Uh, it was extremely fun. I saved a bunch of money and then I, you know, I was like, all right, I, can, I have a little bit of freedom now I can go and do something different. But then, uh, my friend from high school had a tech, tech company that was like not doing good for a long time. Like it was okay. They were surviving, but I lived with them for a while. They were eating rice and egg. Like it was not great. And so I'd never even considered working for their company, but then they COVID hit their software, their IT software the company I work for right now, oh, it's actually the big uh, Synchro. Well, now there's a huge demand for this software and they also went through a merger. And so now there's just like so much attention on this type of software, this managed service provider, internal IT software. And we were like, it was a disruptive pricing. It was really like friend, like a, our, everybody on the market, like Reddit loved us, everybody loved us. And there was a huge amount of demand. And so my friend reached out and my, uh, and you know, me and my best friend who worked in the car business went to go work for his company. And since then it's just been growing so crazy. So it's been two years now at Synchro and like, we've got an awesome product in a growing market segment. It was just like Goldilocks conditions. And I was like, all right, I wasn't going to do sales, but this, I can't say no to this. So uh, that's how I ended up here. And it's been, oh, it's like literally the greatest thing that I heard. Like, if you find one of these tech companies that like has a good product and is doing well, it's like, I work from home. It's completely remote job. I, it's great work-life balance. It's like these companies, there's some of these little companies that are out there and they're growing like crazy. And it's like, I'm learning so much and it's been awesome. They took a chance on me because I was in the car business before I was never done tech before, but um it's, and it's just been so fun and awesome. So I really love it. Okay, you have to do a little bit of explaining to a newbie uh, audience, at least I am when it comes to, I jotted this down, managed software provider software. So oh yeah, yeah. Ma managed service provider. I'll give you a super quick one down. Basically every big company has IT. There's like an IT person at your company or you hire an outside company to be your IT company. 
both of those groups, either your internal IT department or the company that manages your IT from the outside uses software to do their work, we provide that software. And so we have an all-in-one solution that's priced very aggressively and has all the features that most people need. And so it's just people that are in the IT space, whether or not, I, let's say you work at Google and you, gotta, you have to manage all of the laptops that Google gives its employees. Well, you need a software to like do that work. Well, if you work internally at Google, you're gonna use a software like ours. Or if you work at a company that let's say manages the IT of every dentist office in San Jose, you need to use a software to do that work. You can't just like show up at every business and fix it with, you know, log in and try to fix it. You want to be able to fix it remotely. And that's our software allows you to do like all of the fixing and the billing, invoicing, remoting and everything. So it's like an all-in-one solution. And it's uh, just a really good fit for this market segment. What were the skills that were clearly transferable and where did you have to kind of pick up new skills? Yeah, so I got, uh, I came in, I would say that sales is sales at the end of the day. It was a more complicated, like selling IT software is more complicated than selling a car. Because a car, a lot of times it's like, look how shiny it is. But uh, like an IT software is like, we, you know, we're priced per technician and it comes bundled with Splashtop and the AV deployment works like that. Like you do need to learn some lingo. But the nice thing is like, good companies realize it takes a little while. So when we started, they're like, hey, it's going to take two months for you to learn everything. Like, here's all the resources, read this, watch these videos. So learning the product knowledge was challenging at first, but it wasn't even that, like it was easier than anything you ever did in college. So it wasn't that bad. Uh, but as far as like the sales side of it goes, I think that it's a lot more like problem solving and business to business. This is a business to business sale instead of a uh, customer, which is kind of nice actually, because selling directly to customers, uh, like end users, yeah, like it's not always the best. Like kind of, customers are emotional; they can be really angry. But like if you sell to a business, they're usually professional because they just like I just want to make money. Does your software help me make money? Like it's pretty simple. But like a customer is like that color is the same color that my other car at home is. So I don't want it. It's like, well, that's not that logical, but you have to deal with a lot of illogical stuff. So that is the problem with dealing with customers, but it is fun because you get to hang out with normal people. Um, but I would say I don't miss it. I like working with businesses is so much more logical. I'm guessing it's a longer sales cycle though, too. So how do you deal with that? Right? Like I, I assume there are a lot of people by the time they get to you at the auto dealership, they kind of were ready to roll. And this might take, I don't know. I don't know what the average price, the ticket is for your software, but yeah, involve multiple calls and then. Sure. But okay. A couple of caveats. One, I'm not in a closing role at this. Like uh, when I came in, they were like, well, do you want to, you know, do you want to be on the earlier side of the business where you're like setting the demos, qualifying the customers, getting the leads, like what's called like an SDR BDR. Or do you want to be like on the AE side where you're like, you're going to have to learn a lot more product knowledge and close the deals. And I actually came here with two other friends. So I worked with two other friends from college in the car business for all eight years. It's like two, like the three musketeers kind of. And we all came from that Audi dealership to this new business. Like we, we came as a package deal from the Audi dealership to here. Um, one of my friends went to the AE closing role and she had to learn a lot more than my best friend and I needed to learn because she needed to learn everything to close the deal. And that was a lot more complicated. And 
she gets paid more to do that. So that's great. I didn't necessarily want that stress right away. So I came in and I was like, hey, I'll do like the more like entry level job at a tech company. We could still pays pretty good. And maybe I can move it to like management in that department, which is what I've eventually done. So now we, I do some management and some of the actual work, but I'm very early in the sales cycle. So I'm like talking to customers. I'm the first touch point with customers, but that's still really important, but it's not as stressful as my friend's job, which is like the closing role, which is like brass tacks. How much is it going to cost me? Do the transaction, negotiate. Like that's a more complicated job, but it gets, it gets paid better. So you decide if you want to do that. So back in the day, and this was, you know, I'm dating my, we used to call that lead gen. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm in the lead gen. That's exactly, which is nice because being in lead gen is so important to a business. Like I'm the funnel, like without me, the customers don't come to us. So it's like, it's really nice to be in like an extremely important part of the business because it feels like you have a little job security when you're like, oh, I'm the funnel that gets the customers into the pipeline. So that that's pretty cool. And a lot of people see this as an entry level job. Uh, and it is because it doesn't take that long to learn, but being really good at an entry-level job is actually kind of fun because you can manage people and teach people how to do it. And, and it's a fun, like part, it's a fun sales process for me. And then I get to hand off the complicated conversation to somebody else. Yep. Yeah. So lead gen folks is short for lead generation and do your job well, Andre, and the salespeople love you, right? Cause you're kind of Cause there's a lot of in that conversation you're having with the customer figuring out whether they're appropriate, figuring out kind of what their needs are that you then pass along to sales. So I think a lot of people often think sales is a one person, you know, it's an individual no. game, but in a corporation, I mean, lead gen hands off to account executive and then you have post sales too, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's onboarding and all kinds of stuff. So like one of the questions that came in from Maria looks like, how do you deal with rejection when doing sales? It's just become super normal. Like you just... You have to have a mentor or teacher or something be like, tell you that like days are going to go up and down. Your days are going to go up and down. You just average it out. Like some people are just going to say no, but that's okay. And you have to just expect it. You don't take it personally. And some people get mad at you. Like, why'd you just call me? Like, who gave you my phone number? It's like, well, sir, you gave us your phone number, but no problem. I'm so sorry I called you. You just, you get a thicker skin and it takes a little while. And getting rejected sucks, but getting rejected when you ask a girl out to prom sucks, but it happened to me. I mean, you just deal with it. You know what I mean? You learn how to deal with it. Yeah. It takes a special, I mean, I think I've discovered it takes a special personality because uh, it sounds like you're getting inbound requests, but then there's another part of the role, which is, I don't know whether do they do. Yeah, we have outbound too. So we have inbound and outbound. We have kind of like hot leads, which is like a neutral signup. We've got information requests, which are kind of like mild leads. And then we have completely cold, like, I just went on Google and pulled up phone numbers uh, from Google Maps. And that's fun too. Like they're all, it's all part of the business. Every part has a different closing percentage. So like you just know going in, if I'm calling random people from Google Maps and I just search MSP and start calling people, like not a lot of people are gonna wanna talk to you. But if you do get somebody, that's pretty awesome. It does feel good to find somebody. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a more analytical game than people might think yeah. too. Like talk about how that plays into it. Well, I mean, analytical, true, but it's also kind of a gut feeling thing too. You kind of, your brain is extremely good at pattern recognition. And so like, if you, after a couple of months, you've talked to enough customers that you know what the kind of best fit customer kind of sounds like. So if I'm trying to sell into one to three man IT businesses, 
and a receptionist picks up the phone, well, I'm probably calling the wrong business because that one to three man shop doesn't have a reception. So like your brain learns these patterns. Even what they say when they got on the phone, the things that they ask for, you really quickly figure out what's a good fit. Um, so yeah, I would say that that is, uh, you, you have to analyze kind of what a good bit, what a good customer fit will be. But if you do your front end work and you call the right people, then most of it is just like, you get on the phone as soon as you hear their voice and what they say to you, you're like, Oh, done. I've got a good one. Or, oh, nope, this is the wrong. Like, this is not going to work. But sometimes you get surprised, but generally your brain figures it out. It's not super complicated. Okay. So I'm not going to put you on the spot here. Give me a 30 second elevator pitch. Oh, Synchro MSP. It's the literally the best IT management software on the market for businesses like yours that are in this size. So it's an MSP software that can also be used for internal IT. It's paper technician. You're probably paying bare. I'm guessing you're paying per endpoint right now, right? Yeah, nod your head, yes. Okay, perfect. Well, we're paper technician, which means we don't punish you when you grow, but we do include everything you need to run your business. We have RMM, we have remote access, we have ticketing, billing. Billing automation is probably a full-time job for somebody at your work. It no longer, you can get rid of them. You don't need them anymore. You're gonna have all your billing automated. You're gonna be able to remote it to computers with one click. You're gonna be able to do your whole job from a single pane of glass. You can close all those windows that you're doing right now, get one window open and relax. That's why you're going to use our software. And guess part, no contracts. You can do it month to month. And if you really like us, sign up for a year. But we're not going to lock you in like some of the other guys. I won't mention names. Lock you in for three years. Why are they doing that? Well, that's because they're scared you're going to leave. We're not scared you're going to leave. That's why you're going to like us. Check it out. Let's set you up with a trial. Let's get you up on a demo and see how you like it. All right. Who's signing up? I don't know about you guys. but You need uh... to have the business. For... <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty convincing. Uh, folks, I just have one last question and this is around your love of writing andre tell us about your your career as a writer yeah so i when i was in the car business i will say the car mm, a lot of these jobs you get it the pattern then you figure out how the job works and then you just repeat the process over and over and over again to make money like that's most jobs right and i found it kind of not the most intellectually stimulating thing after five six years and i was like i need to do something to keep myself interested and so I started writing about the car business while being in the car business because I like teaching people. And obviously, I like to talk. You can tell I like the sound of my own voice. So I was like, OK, if I write online, people can find my articles on Google. So I started with LinkedIn. I'd write an article like how to have good customer service in the car business. And people read it. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm going to start a blog. And so I started a blog. And that was fun. It kept me interested at night when I got home from work. And when I was at work, I was more interested in the work because I was thinking like, oh, how could this be an article that I'm going to write? And then I wrote a bunch of articles and I had enough articles written. I loved writing because it was a logical way of getting the information out of your head and it was good practice. And then I was like, wait, why don't I just put a bunch of these articles into a book? And so I took a bunch of the articles, rewrote them and put them into books. And I sold like, I, I mean, it's a tiny little side business, but I've sold 900 copies or 950 copies of the books and made about, I've made about $9,000, you know, you think after costs and everything, it's about 10 bucks a book. So I've made about nine grand on the books after everything. And then uh, that actually, the nice thing is you do that, people get to know you as a writer and then they reach out, they're like, oh, you're the guy about car business customer service. And then you get opportunities based on that. So I got job offers because I was writing, stuff. like I was just doing this as a hobby. I was making money and I was getting like, uh, you know, offers for other things. And I actually ended up that those books, those two books led me to 
being an expert witness on a court trial down in Southern California, which was awesome because I made like five grand to just tell them what I thought my opinions were on the case. And that was like the coolest thing ever. Best money I've ever made. And uh, they literally like, no, we just want your opinion. I was like, you're going to pay me for my opinion. Like you should tell other people to do the same. So it's like, that was the greatest thing ever. So I think that like writing was such a cool thing because I kept me interested at work made me a little bit of money or a good amount of money. And then it got me more opportunities as well. And it grew my confidence is who I am and my skills. So I like writing. I, I think anybody that likes their job should write about their job because other people are curious. Like people are starting their first day at the job that you've had for 10 years and they're going to Google how to be the best X. And if you write the article, how to be the best X, they're going to read it and they're going to like you and then they'll pay you for your book. Yeah, one of the first blog posts I wrote probably in 2014 was, or no, it was even earlier than that when I first started teaching was the first day of class activities. And I still get emails from folks saying, hey, can you share with me that activity? Uh, For exactly the same reason you said, they Google first day uh, of class and that's that's what they see. What was the case about? I'm curious. Uh, It was about, it was a wrongful death case actually, which is kind of crazy, but basically a car dealership called in an employee into work and the employee and there was a car accident and somebody passed away. And so who's at fault was the, you know, it's a, it was like a, a quest, the law, I don't understand the law. I'm not a lawyer, but it was basically like, was this a typical thing for a car dealership to do to call somebody into work on the day off? And was that therefore like compelled action? It was all this kind of complicated stuff. I just had to say what I knew about car business process. Like I wasn't coming in as a law guy. I was coming in as a, car business guy and they just needed somebody that knew about the car business and wrote some articles that they could put on a slideshow. So that was me. Last question for you, Andre, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, just program cars that dealers put up good deal or not. I, I could you kind of explain what you mean by program cars? Oh, I assume that those are cars. Um, you know, uh, let's say that you have loaner cars. Oh, 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 loaner cars are usually, um, well, depends. I would say luxury loaner cars, I probably wouldn't get, but like a, like a domestic or Japanese or something like that loaner car is probably fine. I mean, loaner cars are becoming more and more rare these days anyways, because loaner cars are typically used for service. Like when somebody's getting their car service, you get a loaner, but as profits in service goes down, as like EVs become more popular and then there's less service to be done, profits go down and then there's less loaner cars. So I think they're like, the era of free loaner cars is disappearing. And like, that's going to go away eventually. And so, yeah, I mean, they can be a good deal, but you're buying a rental car. So it's like, it's probably been driven pretty hard, but, and if you get it checked out and they bundle a free warranty, then it's probably fine. But like, it's no better than any other car that you can buy used. And it's probably worse because people do drive loaner cars pretty hard. If that's what the question was about loaner cars, people, people think they're race car drivers when they're driving somebody else's car. <laughs> Andre, this was fun. Great, yeah, to, super fun. Uh, great to connect with you again. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. I hope you're reading the chat too. How appreciative people are. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, in- this was so fun. I, I always like talking to you, so this has been great. A few final housekeeping items before we go. We'll put links to the resources that Andre mentioned. We'll put those in our show notes, which you can find at www.ngpf.org/podcast. Better yet. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank Ren McKino for producing this podcast, as well as the blog post that accompanies it with the show notes, which help you determine what was discussed and 
when in the podcast it was discussed. Thank you, Ren. So on behalf of Andre and myself, I want to thank you again for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week.